Um, this evening's reading is taken from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to the first half of 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's, Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Dawn. Good evening, everybody. First chance I've had this evening to welcome you. My name's Jonathan G. My privilege to be the vicar here. Lovely to see friends from different churches ar around the town. Um, during COVID, we really missed seeing each other. And it's, only, it's great that James, who led our prayers, has got the church leaders' prayer meetings going again. And uh, I really appreciated my relationship as part of the church in this town. And now, January the 25th, is a great date. We all know what December the 25th is. 
January the 25th is celebrated around the world by churches of all traditions as the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. So at St. Paul's Church here, we're at tonight. Wednesday is the Conversion of St. Paul's Day, so I'm going to preach on the Conversion of St. Paul tonight. And I, I hope that wherever you are, if you've been a Christian for many, many years, or whether you're just exploring us, you'll see something of yourself as we look through this journey and you'll be thrilled afresh with God's hope that he can save the most unlikely people. Saul of Tarsus, an extraordinarily unlikely person, and yet God was at work in him. So let's pray that God will speak to us this evening. Father, here we are in St. Paul's Church, uh, celebrating the conversion of St. Paul. We thank you for turning around Saul of Tarsus. We thank you that through him you brought the gospel to Europe, and then for the countless thousands of people who have lived for you and passed on the message of the gospel, right down to those who first taught us about it. Come by your spirit this evening as I speak, as we look at the story. Will you speak to each one of us? If we've got stuck at all in our walk with you, would you rejuvenate us as we remember how you first brought us to you. If we're uh, exploring faith, would you lead us on? So come and speak, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, like some of you, I grew up in a Christian home. Others of you obviously didn't. Um, actually, just sort of a straw poll. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? Just, uh, how many of you didn't? There we are. We're sort of, sort of three-fifths, two-fifths. But it's... Um, some of us get converted dramatically like St. Paul. Some of it's a real, a real process. But I grew up in a Christian home, but I loved the stories of people who had dramatic conversions. I was a reader, and I used to read those stories. I loved the story of St. Paul, who we celebrate today. Uh, one of my favorites was John Newton, uh, the, the slave tra ship tra captain who was converted to Christ through a crisis in a storm. And God met him, and who wrote the hymn we'll sing at the end tonight, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. Uh, I was rather surprised on New Year's Day um, watching the BBC. I don't know how many of you watched the BBC on New Year's Day, but they did a feature on Amazing Grace because it's 250 years since John Newton had written that. It was his, he used to write hymns quite regularly at his parish in Olney after he stopped, uh, after he was converted from being a slave uh, trader. Uh, he wound up uh, being ordained in the Church of England in the parish of Olney, and he used to write new hymns. And for his New Year hymn for 250 years ago was Amazing Grace. And you can go to the parish, they have a visitor centre, but the BBC did it. And uh, with no side at all, they just celebrated the hymn. It was rather remarkable. I prayed that more of that would continue this year. Uh, I still do. That was 250 years ago, John Newton. And lots of other stories. I loved those stories. As a teenager, I kicked against... The Christian faith a bit, the expressions I'd seen, a very sleepy village church I was part of where my dad was the vicar and I got rather fed up with that and impatient as a teenager. At school, the sort of school where you had assembly in a chapel every day where everyone was my age but no one seemed to believe it. Uh, and at 18, having sort of gone up and down uh, as to whether I was believed this or not and whether I was going to follow Jesus or not, uh, someone challenged me, do you believe it's true? And I knew it was, and I went to university and had a fresh start. 
But there was no dramatic moment. There'd been a growing up in a Christian home, like many of you here. There'd been a drifting away. There'd been torn two ways. And then I came back to Jesus. And for many years, I felt really rather sad that I didn't have a dramatic conversion story. I'd read all of these, but I didn't have one. I even felt a bit inadequate as a Christian. And then I realized that for lots of people, conversion is a gradual process. Uh, even for St. Paul, it was a process. Uh, Jesus had got under his skin. He was sure he was wrong. He couldn't possibly have been the Messiah. Obviously, he died on a cross. He was under God's curse. And he was persecuting, and he'd seen Stephen die, martyred. And, uh, and then this dramatic three days we heard about, from the blinding flash of light to when Ananias came. Even the most dramatic conversion story of all time was a process. Uh, but for some of us, the process took an awful lot longer than that. But in, the, in my long process, there were various key stages. Uh, think of John Wesley whose heart was strangely warmed while listening to that sermon in Aldersgate Street. But it transformed his life and ministry. Uh, and the point is, it doesn't matter how you come to faith in Jesus, whether it was dramatic or slow and gradual. What matters, the real test, is not did you see a flash of lightning and fall off your horse or whatever Saul of Tarsus did or... Uh, but what is your life like afterwards? Do you live with Jesus as Lord? What difference does this make? Jesus said it's not by their conversion stories that you know them, but by their fruit that you know them, the impact in our life. And so I thought it would, I would look tonight at the story of St. Paul's conversion and say, well, what is true for all people who come to faith in Jesus about this? Uh, not all of us will be on the Damascus Road when we came to faith, and not everyone will have seen a blinding flash of light. But it's the same God uh, who is still drawing people to himself and some very unlikely people to himself. Uh, so I've got four points. I'm not sure if that's allowed. You're meant to have three, aren't you? But anyway, I have four things uh, uh, that I see are true of God bringing people to faith. Uh, the first one is that it's God's initiative. It's God who is far more concerned to bring people to faith than any of us are to find faith. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul, was not looking for this, quite the reverse. Uh, just a few verses uh, from the chapter 8. If we could put up those verses, Zach, from the end of... This is the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8. Uh, Stephen, the first martyr, is being stoned. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. Uh, then we read on. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. But those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So the gospel spread beautifully, but Saul was not looking to be converted. It was not his initiative. It was God's initiative who broke into his life. Saul knew that Jesus must be wrong. As I said earlier, the scriptures say, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. There was Jesus hanging on a tree. He must be under God's curse. How could he possibly 
be the Messiah. Of course they were wrong. He must stamp them out. It was the best thing he could do. They were heretics. And they'd spread everywhere. But when they spread, churches started springing up. So he had to go off elsewhere to Damascus to arrest them. Jesus had got under his skin, you could say. Uh, and, it was, and, and God was at work in him, even though he didn't know it. Now, some people go along with God's leading of their lives so easily, they barely notice how God's met, met them. Someone says, would you like to come to Alpha with me or to church? Yeah, I'll come. And they, they just sort of fall into it. Uh, others fight it the whole way, like St. Paul was fighting. C.S. Lewis, I love his autobiography, his story of how he came to faith. But he describes God as the great angler looking to catch a fish. And just, or uh, the hound of heaven chasing down someone. Or the divine chess player. Just slowly, but it's God's initiative. Now, you may not recognize that at the time as you're exploring faith. But when you look back, you can see how God was drawing you. And the, uh, if any of you have been a Christian for any length of time, you'll be able to look back and say, oh, well, there were those people who were praying and those people who invited. And, those, and you can see how God was drawing you a Christian friend, a relative's prayer, a Christmas service, or whatever it is. That's the first point. It's God's initiative. And he is at work among our friends, our family, our neighbours, our work colleagues, our town, drawing people to himself. It's not that we have a ministry and we ask God to help us with this. Our job is to look out for where God is at work. He is at work drawing people to himself. That's the first point. Second thing is that for all of us who come to faith, there is a moment of insight where we think, ah, this is true. Uh, whether it's a dramatic flash of light, like St. Paul, uh, that conversation that he had on the Damascus Road, who are you, Lord? And those three days afterwards when he realized that the Christians were right and he was wrong, he probably spent most of the three, next three days going through all that he knew of the Old Testament. He was blinded, he couldn't see anything, but he'd learnt so much. I wonder if he put two and two together, that yes, Jesus was under a curse, but he was taking your and my curse for him when he died for our sins on the cross. Did that insight come in those three days or did that come later? We don't know. Uh, he must have thought about the Christians he'd persecuted, like he saw Stephen praying as Jesus had for those who killed him to be forgiven. He must have thought about how all the Pharisee training had left him outwardly righteous and respectable, but inwardly seething with anger, like the older brother uh, that Jesus taught about. Like Martin Luther's own story, however hard you try, it's not enough. You're just aware of more of what's wrong. And there was a time when he, that flash, he realized. As John Newton, who in Amazing Grace, and he cried out to God in that storm and then was amazed that the, the God who'd made him, the God of love, cared even for a wretch like him. That flash of insight. Now, it doesn't mean, need to be dramatic. Uh, and maybe some here are exploring faith. You're beginning to pray and sensing that God is there. You're beginning to read the Bible and thinking, gosh, it begins to make sense. You, you may be like John Wesley and find your heart is strangely warmed and you can't quite work out what it is. If that's you, I do encourage you to go to an Alpha course either here or somewhere else or one of the equivalents 
Uh, they're great ways to explore Christian faith. But in every journey to faith, there comes a moment of insight. We think, this is true. And it may be a gradual dawning, it may be a flash of light. Third thing that I think is true of all of us who are Christians, there has to be a moment of spiritual surrender where we bow our knee to Jesus as Lord and say, you are God and I am not. Where we turn around from life based on us, centered on me, that's a good definition of sin, a life centered on me, and we bow our knee to try and live a life centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, a turning to Christ, a spiritual surrender. Repentance literally means a changing of our minds about who God is. Uh, from St. Paul, from persecuting the church to joining the church. Not a minor adjustment of life. This is a radical change. C.S. Lewis, who'd been, who grew up atheist and wrestled with this the whole way, said, eventually I gave in and admitted that God was God, perhaps that night the most dejected convert in all of Christendom. I love that story. He just absolutely fed up that oh, it probably is true I'm going to have to go with it how ghastly sort of thing uh, I love that and he, he described how God would welcome him even a reluctant convert with open arms and then he wrote his autobiography surprised by joy he really didn't expect that uh, that was my testimony too I said I'd grown up in a Christian home I'd kicked against it I hadn't seen an expression of Christianity uh, that I'd loved, particularly apart from Scripture Union camps in the summer. They'd, they'd been wonderful. Uh, but I knew it was true. And this older Christian said to me, well, if it's true, what are you going to do about it? And I, fresh start as a student, I thought, okay, I'll live with it. I'll, I'll live with Jesus as Lord because it's true. And I was blown away by joy. The joy came in at the point where I bowed my knee to Jesus as Lord. Some people uh, don't get told the whole story. They say, God will forgive you, ask for forgiveness. But then they're still wrestling with who's Lord. Uh, Christian conversion is properly bowing the knee to Jesus as your Lord, repenting of going life your own way. And then the first thing God does is forgive you and fill you with his spirit and adopt you into his family. Uh, Jesus says, if you try and hold on to your life, you lose it. But if you give your life to him, you find it. And those of us who are Christians have begun to experience that. And I find when it's going wrong for me, it's probably because I'm trying to take my life back. Um, we are to be living sacrifices. And the trouble with living sacrifices, they always say, is they crawl off the altar. We have to get back on and offer our lives to Jesus. And for some of you who've got stuck, it may be that you've lost that point of surrender to Jesus as Lord. So Ananias comes to Saul. Ananias, a wonderful example of a surrendered Christian. He gets a clear leading from the Lord Jesus to go and he says, oh Lord, I think you're making a really bad mistake here. Don't you know who this is? Well, of course, Jesus does know. Uh, but Ananias says, well, Lord, if it's you, okay, I'll go. And he, he does the dangerous thing. He enters the house of the man who's come to persecute him because Jesus is his Lord. Ananias comes to Saul and he calls him Brother Saul, utterly gracious. 
and Saul is filled with the Spirit. He can see again. Uh, he's baptized and identifies with Christ and his church. It doesn't matter how that happens, but you have to get to the point where Jesus is Lord and you identify with his people. Oh, I struggled with that in my teenage years. I wanted to follow Jesus, but I was so embarrassed about his people. We have to get over that. The church has always looked weak. Jesus doesn't seem too worried about the church looking weak. We have to get to the point where we submit to him and identify with his people. That's the third thing. It's God's initiative. There's a, a moment of insight. There has to be a spiritual surrender. And then there's a lifelong transformation that starts and then people begin to notice the difference. For Saul of Tarsus, it includes a new name, St. Paul. And he has to put up with all the suffering and hardship to tell people about Jesus. Both for C.S. Lewis and for me, there came a, a real flood of joy in bowing the knee to Jesus Lord. There often is a honeymoon period as a Christian. But that joy, um, the ha happiness comes and goes, but the joy is a hallmark of living Christian faith. And it may be for some of you tonight that you've lost your joy and in, calling, in me calling you back to the point where you came to faith, I pray you'll reconnect with it and know the love of Jesus. For John Newton, it meant abandoning the slave trade, and it meant actually for him, Christian ministry. It's not Christian ministry for most of us. God needs people everywhere. He needs people in education and healthcare and business and, in, and, and just in every walk of life. Politics, the media, the arts. Wherever, but the surrender says, Lord, where you go, I will follow. Uh, for me, that took a bit longer. If the call to be ordained, I would have done anything else. But eventually I'd say, well, Lord, if it's you, make me want to do it. And I will. And he did. Uh, so I did. Now, how does all this apply to you? Well, if you are a Christian, praise God for his initiative. He loves you more than you love him. He's drawn you to himself. And offer yourself to him again. You may identify far more with Ananias than with St. Paul. I think most of us do. But are you looking to follow his leading for how to introduce others to Jesus? I'm going to pray in a moment that God would put someone in your mind to perhaps invite to church or to an Alpha course or just to have coffee and a meal with and see how they are. Um, we had a wonderful preacher last week who said, don't say people's no's for them. We think, I'd like to invite them, oh, but they'll probably say no, so I won't ask them. Invite them. They can say no. Uh, can I ask, like Ananias, Lord, who do you want me to go to for you? Uh, it may be that you're not sure about all this, in which case, can I encourage you, please, to sign up for an Alpha course here or in another church, doesn't matter where, or something like that, or start going to church regularly. But pray, Lord, if this is true, I want to know. Ask the Lord to transform you, to make you to become more of the person he's made you to be. He sees far more in us than we see in ourselves. I was reading the story of Gideon recently, shy Gideon hiding away, and the Lord says, greetings, sort of mighty warrior. <laughs> he sees who he can become. And God sees who you can become so much more 
than we think of ourselves. And as churches together, I love the fact Andy started with that psalm, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together. We put a lot of effort in this town in the years gone by to really working together and our ministries together. COVID, of course, we're all, we're all separated. It's time to pull together again. Um, church leaders for praying together to, for these ministries, but for really looking to see what we can do together to introduce Jesus to the people of this town, of this area. We've had fresh vision as a church to put our energy into that together with anybody else that wants to. But we have such good news, and the good news is for everybody. Um, I can't remember the details of it because I haven't seen the paperwork, but I know the theme of this week of Christian unity is about everybody. So we started off with all creatures of our God and King. That's pretty much everybody. And uh, we want to pray for the Lord to, we want to share the good news of Jesus with everybody in this place. Uh, we can't make them respond, but it's up to us to share the good news. Uh, so let's pray that. Band, would you come back ready to lead us in amazing grace in a minute? Please would you stand and I'll lead in prayer. Uh, I'll lead in prayer and we'll just have a moment of quiet as well for the Lord to bring anything to our attention that he would like to do. Lord Jesus, how we praise you for good news that whoever we are, there is forgiveness. That you died on the cross for all our sin. That you love the most unlikely people like St. Paul or John Newton or me or any one of us. We praise you that you love us, that you died for us, that you've forgiven us, adopted us into your family. Come and fill us afresh tonight with your Holy Spirit. So come Holy Spirit and minister to your people. And we pray especially for any among us who've lost their joy whom it's all just gone stale. Come, Lord, and rejuvenate your people. We pray for all of the churches in our area for a fresh pouring out of your Holy Spirit. We pray for churches together across denominations for you to uh, bring a better working together than there's ever been in the past. And we pray that together you would use us to share the good news of Jesus. We just ask in a moment of quiet if there's anybody you would have us invite, talk with, have coffee with, whatever it is. Put that name of that person in our mind now, we pray. And what would you like us to do, Lord? Is it just time spent with them, a coffee, a meal? Is it inviting to church? Is it inviting to Alpha? What would you have us do? And we pray for each one of us, you've put a name in our mind and something to do. You'd give us the obedience of Ananias, however daft it sounds to follow your leading. And we pray for fresh confidence in the gospel for us and for the whole church in this nation, our broken nation, 
that you would pour your spirit out and be preparing people, drawing people to yourself as you were working in St. Paul long before he knew it, such that when the time is right, one of your people can invite or speak or share their story. So come Holy Spirit, fill us afresh with the gospel, with love for you, with love for each other, with love for those who don't yet know you. And we pray for a great turning to you in this town and in this land. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing Amazing Grace.